0: Let's turn together to God's Word in the Acts of the Apostles. We're reading in chapter 9. Folks in Brookside will be familiar with this chapter as we have been dabbling into it over the last uh, wee while. Acts chapter 9. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he journeyed, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. Inquire in the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon thy name. But the Lord said to him, "'Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine "'to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings "'and the sons of Israel. "'For I will show him how much he must suffer "'for the sake of my name.'" So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, "'Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, "'who appeared to you on the road by which you came, "'has sent me that you may regain your sight.'" and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and took food and was strengthened. For several days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and in the synagogues immediately he proclaimed Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called on this name? And he has come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down over the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus so he went in and out amongst them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists but they were seeking to kill him and when the brethren knew it they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it was multiplied. May the Spirit of the Lord indeed give us understanding in his word. Acts chapter 9, and very last verse uh, that we read here this evening, verse 31, is another of those marvelous little summaries of the progress of the gospel, keeping us updated, as it were, amidst all that was going on, as to how the Lord was unerringly and resolutely advancing his own purposes. And his purpose, of course, was to build for himself a dwelling place, a temple that Peter refers to as a temple built of living stones. Individuals like you and me, called to faith in Jesus Christ, built into a living temple for the living God and with Christ as the cornerstone. Paul was later to write to the Corinthians. And he said to them, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy, and that temple you are. Now, the gospel had gone far beyond the walls of Jerusalem. Remember Jesus' commission to the disciples to go and to preach the gospel in Jerusalem? Jerusalem? In Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And where the gospel had gone, where the evangel had been preached, where Christ had been preached, the church had sprung up, the church had been brought to life through all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, as it says in verse 31 here not a building or buildings of brick and mortar, of course, but that living temple for God. Communities of believers. No doubt there were more than one, there were many, perhaps, communities of believers, groups of believers, but one church, one body of Christ. Now, what do we learn of this church? Just some things this evening that we can learn about this infant church in its early days. The church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, we are told, had peace. The church had peace. It was enjoying a period of relative freedom from outside interference. Saul the Pharisee, we called him, on other occasions, Saul the Terminator, who had been wreaking havoc in the church, tracking down Christians, arresting them, throwing them into prison pursuing some of them even to death. A man who was hell-bent on obliterating testimony to Jesus Christ, to reducing the very name of Jesus to a footnote in history. But Saul the Terminator had himself been arrested. He had been apprehended by Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he had become very quickly Saul the Testifier the foremost enemy of the gospel had become a great exponent of the gospel. In uh, verse 20 of this chapter, uh, we, are, we are told that he confessed uh, to those who were listening, and he proclaimed that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, that's quite a claim, that uh, Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 22, Saul increased all the in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. There was no person better placed than Saul to preach those things and to make proof of those things concerning Jesus. And they said there was no one better because Saul was a Pharisee. He was steeped saturated in the scriptures of the Old Testament. If anyone knew about the promises and the hopes of a Messiah to come, of a Christ to come, then Paul knew it. Paul was a man who was fitted for the job. And he was proving that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the Messiah. In verse 28, that Jesus is Lord. And he was doing so with such enthusiasm... And ability, that he himself now had a price on his head. Verse 28 He went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Now, the Hellenists, not the same Hellenists that were mentioned in Acts chapter 6, a Gentile believers who had come into the church, but rather Hellenistic Jews, Jews of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, Sadducees, many of them, generally aristocratic Jews who were religious and political pawns in the hands of the Roman authorities, (coughs) which they didn't particularly relish themselves though they did relish the revenue that they wrecked in through it. These were the temple authorities, and temple business was big business, and it was very lucrative. And so Paul had to be spirited away to Caesarea and then back to Tarsus in Cilicia, where he himself had originated from, to the place of his his birth. And it seems likely that Paul remained in Tarsus after that time for a period of about 10 years before he appeared again, when Barnabas was sent to bring Saul to engage with him in mission and ministry outreach. And we might say, what a pity that was. Saul banished, well, not banished, but spirited away to Cilicia, to Tarsus, Why didn't he stay? Why didn't he stick it out even despite the threats? Surely he was the man for the moment. This chief antagonist to Christ and the church and the gospel converted. A changed life for all to see. Who better to make an impact in Jerusalem? Who better to challenge the ignorance of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees After all, he was one of them. He was one of their number. Who better to open their eyes to see Jesus for who he was? Well, we may say God knows best. We remember who it is that is in charge because it's God's mission. He's the great evangelist. And he knows when persecution is advantageous to the gospel, as we saw another time, that through the um, through Paul's antagonism and so on, the church in Jerusalem was scattered. It was scattered into all arts and parts. And, of course, that was advantageous to the gospel because the believers who were scattered took the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and shared it wherever they went, and so the church expanded and grew. Persecution was advantageous to the gospel's spread. But God also knows when peace is appropriate for the church and for the gospel. And so we are told that the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it was multiplied. Verse 31. Persecution brought growth. Peace likewise brought growth. It was being multiplied. The church was growing numerically. They continued to add to its numbers. People were being saved. There was an ongoing increase. And isn't that what we should be seeing as well? The church growing numerically. As it said in chapter 2 and verse 47 of Acts, the people were added daily to the church. Those who were being saved added daily to the church. And we might ask, well, why do we not see the likes of this in our own day and generation? are we doing something wrong? Now, some will say, of course, that numbers isn't everything. Of course, numbers isn't everything. But if the church is not growing, then surely we need to ask why. Numbers isn't everything is too easily dismissive of pertinent questions and serious considerations. Again, some might say, well, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, these were virgin territories for the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ was new good news. And it was good news to a people who were ripe for the gospel. Now, Ulster has had the gospel for generations, it's nothing new. Ulster's been evangelized, can we really think that that's true? Can we really believe that anymore? Because if it's been evangelized, why are there so many Ulster men and women, young people who haven't a notion what the gospel is? If it's been evangelized, why are so many ignorant of the gospel, and why are the pews in our meeting houses half empty? Why are Bibles lying open from week to week, lying unopened from week to week, whilst the television never seems to cool? Why are prayer meetings abandoned while the gyms and the bars and the clubs are teeming with people? And it's a sobering thing to remember that it only takes two generations to empty churches. It only takes two generations to lose the knowledge of the gospel. The infant New Testament church was experiencing growth, whether in persecution or in peace. We don't know what persecution is in the same manner as the early infant church experienced persecution may experience persecution in more subtle ways if we're only aware of it, but we have enjoyed decades of peace. Is there something we need to learn from these early Christians? Is there some basic formula that needs to be in place? Well, you notice what our text says. That the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up. It was being built up, it was a continuous thing. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it was being multiplied. These Christians in the infant church were communities of believers who were being edified, who were being who were walking in the fear of the Lord, who were walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And the result, their numbers were increasing. Let's just think about those things for a moment. They were being edified or built up, the word here used. The Greek word for being built up means to build a house. That's what God is doing, as we said at the beginning. He's building Himself a house, a temple of living stones. They were being edified, they were being built up. They were being consolidated as God's dwelling place, God's temple. They were being edified spiritually. And if we ask how, well, surely through the apostles' teaching and through the fellowship of believers and through the prayers, the breaking of bread together, as it says in Acts 2.42. And it didn't stop. We can't imagine that that stopped at Acts chapter two, but it was something that continued. They continued in the teaching, the fellowship, and the prayers, and the breaking of bread. In this chapter nine and verse 32, we are told that Peter was going here and there among them all. Just as it says of Paul in verse, in verse 28, that he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. That's what they were doing, Peter and Paul. Others too, no doubt. They were teaching. They were consolidating the work. They were doing evangelism, follow-up. Surely there's nothing so wonderfully energizing or so powerfully potent for the advancement of the kingdom of God as a fellowship of praying believers who are saturated in the teaching of God's Word. Can I say that again? That there's nothing so energizing or potent for the advancement of the kingdom of God as a fellowship of praying believers who are saturated in the teaching of God's Word. Absolute necessity. Absolute necessity of a praying church saturated in the Word of God. That's what we need to get hold of. We need to be convinced of it in our minds and our hearts. The question is, are we? And then we need also to be committed to it in practice. And again, the question is, are we? Are we convinced of these things, and are we committed to them? to the Word of God, to the fellowship of believers, to prayer. These two things, the conviction and the commitment, go hand in hand and are, are mutually, mutually confirming. Do we believe in the power of the Word of God? It's power unto salvation to everyone who believes. Do we believe in the power of prayer? Well, if we do, then we must surely commit To the pursuit and the practice of these things. And the more we commit to the practice of it, the more we will be convinced of the power of it. Maybe we give up and throw in the towel far too too easily. Now, two things that follow or accompany the building up of the church or the edification of the believers. Two things that follow are these walking in the fear of the Lord and walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Walking or living out our lives, that is, in the fear of the Lord. That is, thinking and speaking and doing. A life that is conditioned by the sense of the awesomeness of God. We're not talking about an abject fear here when we talk about the fear of the Lord in the sense of terror but rather a sense of the awesome holiness of God that will lead us to worship. And we get that from being saturated in the Word and in prayer. Lives conditioned by the awesomeness of God, revealed in all His works, in His works of creation, The Bible encourages us to look around us at God's created order. To look into the heavens, to look about in this earth. To see the marvel of God's creative power and his works. His awesomeness revealed there in creation. Also in his works of providence. The God who upholds this universe, we are told, by his word of power. And in his work of redemption through Jesus Christ. That pretty much sums up the revelation of the glory of God creation, providence, redemption. And not just the awesomeness of these works of God in creation, providence, and redemption, but the awesomeness of the being of God Himself, who is the Creator who is the provider and the sustainer of life, and who is the redeemer of sinners. And what is it that particularly expresses the awesomeness of the being of God? Well, surely it's His holiness. He is the Holy One. He is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And He says to us men and women, you shall be holy as I am holy. I suggest that that's what living in the fear of the Lord is the pursuit of holiness in our lives, to be holy as he is holy. What a standard that is, to pursue holiness. And how do we do that? Well, we take our cue from Jesus himself, do we not? How does Jesus appear in the flesh? That is, as man, how does Jesus, the Son of God, appear in the Scriptures as one like us, fashioned in every detail like us, yet without sin? How does he appear to us, stuffy, joyless, out of touch, hypocritical, judgmental, some kind of holy Joe? Is that what it means to be holy? Well, not at all. To be holy is to be Christ like. To walk in the fear of the Lord is to be Christ like. Is there anything in Jesus, the man Jesus, is there anything in him that is unattractive? When we consider his love, his compassion, his humility, his meekness, his strength, his truth, his light, his mercy, his grace. Those are the things that accompany edification, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as we seek to pursue that holiness without which no man can see God. So walking or living in the fear of the Lord. Secondly, walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word, the original word in in the Scripture for comfort is paraklesi. And it can mean comfort, it can mean counsel. Jesus talked about the counselor who would come or the comforter that he would send in John 14 and 16, Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another paracleton, another comforter, a counselor, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. In John 14 and 26, the paracletos, the comforter, the counselor, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He's the one who will saturate our lives with the Word of God. Or John fifteen twenty six, When the parakletos, the comforter, comes, even the Spirit of truth, he will bear witness to me, and you also are witnesses. John sixteen thirteen fourteen, 14, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And of course, Jesus said to his disciples, Acts 1, chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, you see, walking in the paraklesi, the comfort or the counsel of the paracletos, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, is, is to be taught by the Spirit. Jesus says when He comes, He will take what is mine and He will teach it to you. And the Holy Spirit was imparted to the church. The Holy Spirit who takes His his own Word and gives us understanding in it, who applies it to our lives and shows us how it impinges upon our daily living. And being empowered by the Spirit to share this good news of the gospel, to preach and to witness to Christ by the Spirit. That's what we're called to. That's why the church, that early infant church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, that's why it was multiplied. God had given it a period of peace, yes, at a time of tribulation, a time of persecution. He multiplied it too. And in a time of peace, he built it up. It was edified. And they were walking in the fear of the Lord. They were were pursuing that holiness, as God calls us to. And they were walking in the comfort and the counsel of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ, teaching them and leading them into a, a greater and a deeper understanding of the Lord himself and motivating them to share that good news with whoever they might meet. Now we're not all called to preach in pulpits or on street corners. The expression of the life of the church, the expression of the life of Jesus within his church takes many different forms. Paul was later to remind us of that in different times in his letters, in his letter to the Romans in chapter 12. He writes this, Romans 12 and verse 4 onwards. For as in one body we have many members, talking about the physical body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. Spiritual body and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who contributes in liberality, he who gives aid with zeal, he who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Surely any of us can do acts of mercy with cheerfulness, exhort and contribute liberally and give aid with zeal. These things are not beyond, beyond any of us. So the church's testimony, the church's testimony to Christ will be effective and effective to the gathering in of many souls to him. And it begins, and it continues in the fellowship of praying believers who are saturated in the word of God, who are seeking to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort and the counsel of the Holy Spirit. So let us give ourselves to prayer that these things might be characteristic of us, that this might be the very life of our church, that that might be the very life of each one of us individually, and that we may see great things in the days to come as God continues, uh, to, uh, continues to work out his grand and great purposes, that his kingdom be built that his temple, that house of living stones, continues to be built to his glory and for his kingdom's sake. Amen. Let us join together in the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word, and we, we thank you that you have given us this word to study and uh, to read Uh, to be saturated with it, that you have poured out your Spirit upon your church, that Spirit indwells the life of every believer, that you, Lord, might teach us from your Word, that you might teach us more and more of Jesus, who, who He is and what He has accomplished, of the glory and the wonder of His saving grace, that our hearts might more and more be captivated by the glory of it, that we can do nothing else but share it with those around us. In his name we pray. Amen.